My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Alex Teplitz, who goes by either Aldermancy or Sword Ghost, depending on the platform. We had a very wonderful conversation, and we talk about player agency, player choice, world building with the characters in mind, narrative control tools, and mirroring. We also touch on the stream Alex is running called Strange Hungers. Don't forget, if you are interested in being on the show, hop on over to our Discord server or ping me on Twitter. And without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Alex, also known as Aldermancy, on many social networking platforms. Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So... I am about to graduate college, and I've spent the past about four, four and a half years just getting more and more immersed in the tabletop role-playing scene. I'm actually a member of a college role-playing group that was started by Keith Eberon, interestingly enough. It's called the Discordians uh, at the college that I go to, and they do a bunch of weekly games, they run D&D campaigns, we have Magic the Gathering tournaments, that kind of thing. That is the main group that I've spent a lot of time GMing for, DMing for, planning events for. But my the most fun story I think I have related to getting into TTRPGs is that my first year seminar, which is a mandatory class for freshmen at my college, was actually called the Dire Cast. And it was a classical medieval studies course that focused on game design as a method to look at classical history. Uh, And it was run by this really, really amazing professor. His name is Hamish Cameron. He's actually an RPG designer as well. Uh, He designed The Sprawl, which is very, very fun, um, lovely game, and I highly recommend it. And he was very passionate about introducing us to a world of indie RPGs I think, you know, again, like this is about four or five years ago at this point, before I had any inkling of any kind of indie RPG scene um, as it's been booming in recent years. So it was it was really fun. We played things like Fiasco. We played some games that he had designed. We looked at uh, interesting like warfare and wargaming history and some of the the history coming up of uh, D&D and other role playing games, uh, how they come out of, out of strategy. So that was really fun. It was super amazing. I met a lot of friends in that class. And then I also got to connect to a few other professors that he was friends with. So I've actually played and run D&D games for a bunch of academics, which is a very fun experience. I think they bring a lot to the table and it's brought me together with people of a bunch of different ages um, from a bunch of different backgrounds. So, yeah. That's really cool that you kind of got introduced to it in a college class. And that sounds, the the way you described the college class, it sounds like uh, one that I wish I would have gotten to have when I was in school. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I am such a big fan of it. And I do think that there's such a space in academia for using gaming, for gamifying experiences and education. Uh, I have a bunch of friends who are looking at using role-playing games in uh, psychology work, in education work, in getting uh, reluctant learners to engage in storytelling. So 
I happen to think uh, that there should be more more classes out there that just include um, interactive storytelling as a way for people to learn and engage and to bring up topics that people might be less interested in, you know, historical gaming, um, but also ideas of, I don't know, like uh, like safety as well um, in gaming and using games as a way to approach maybe difficult topics, topics that are hard to learn about or talk about by um, allowing people to have empathy by stepping into roles instead of talking about them uh, for a, a more, you know, like maybe intimate personal experience. Yeah, I always wish that there was a little bit more in terms of, like you said, like you mentioned, gamifying um, learning. I know that there have been a few games that I have played that has expanded my knowledge of just various things like the Civilization franchise, right? I oh, got yeah, into absolutely. that. Absolutely. I got into that when I was younger and then would be reading up on all of these random little like historical locations and, you know, different military units from different time periods and stuff. And it's just, it's a lot more interesting when you're engaging in it from a perspective where you care about the information than like, you need to know this because it's going to be on the test. Absolutely. I think games are, are such a fun vehicle for becoming part of a story instead of just learning about it in you know a dusty textbook uh and i've had some i actually took another game design class um more recently i think this was about year year and a half ago and this was digital game design this wasn't um tabletop role playing as much necessarily but we also got to look at some of that like really cool history of where gaming comes from and how how it was used as sort of a in tandem with some like political power structures or people who were very involved in coding and programming um, or even in like governmental, you know, bureaucracy kind of thing as a way to decompress, as a way to relax, but also to take some of the very intense topics that they were dealing with and to um, to find joy and delight in them. Um, You mentioned that when you got introduced to kind of the tabletop space, that it was more the indie scene. What what games did you start out with? Yeah, I think one of the first games that I ever played was Fiasco, which is um, super, super fond of Fiasco. It has a very it plays on a lot of tropes of like heist or spy kind of movies it it really leans into into that space um and it has a very different kind of like building of building of character uh talking about people like with ambition and poor impulse control um i yeah i uh it's very like cinematic you know it's capers it's things going disastrously disastrously wrong messing up their reputations and often ending in in some kind of uh not not very fun ending but i think it's very (laughs) beginner friendly um it's very easy to learn it only takes about i'd say like two hours to play three to five players and it also comes with three different play sets it's also very genre bending friendly i would say you can really hybridize a bunch of different genres genres um playing fiasco so it's really cool i think it's also made it's by uh Bully Pulpit games. Um, so I definitely recommend checking that one out. And that was a really cool game for us to play as people who hadn't done a lot of RPGs. I don't think anyone in the class that I was taking had ever played a role-playing game before. Uh, and learning it through, like, with a professor, a professor who does game design constantly, meant that he was pulling both from 
sources, like, you know, movies he was recommending that we should watch or, uh, like, classical mythological stories he was recommending that we should read, but also teaching us about the design of a game, asking us how how we're being asked to step into character, how we're being asked to step into setting, and how this, how games like Fiasco pull not just from a, a game design, you know, history, but from a narrative design. What kind of narrative ends up getting told? What kind of endings are you looking towards, even as you're building a character from the very start? And how has, uh, starting with Fiasco, has that kind of informed or kind of molded your DM style? I I think in part it has. I, hmm, I think it was less just playing Fiasco and some of the other indie games we played, and more that I wasn't introduced to GMing and and running stories just with D&D which I know is a, is a wonderful entry point for a lot of different players. But I actually, before I ever played a game of Dungeons & Dragons, I designed a role-playing game for the final of that class. And it wasn't uh, a role-playing game that was focused necessarily on how, and it was leaning into narrative themes of pulling from, pulling from free I played meant that I come from a very narrative tradition of storytelling so always looking at the story you're trying to tell first and then what mechanics can you shape can you build can you work with players to make in order to highlight that story above all yeah that makes a lot of sense and as i've slowly been expanding my um kind of horizons of what i've played i do tend to find myself moving a little bit more towards some of the narrative stuff um (laughs) Sometimes just for ease of of running it as a game master, because there's usually less rules then. Um, But also because it sometimes seems easier to uh, come up with or have those cool like cinematic moments, kind of like you mentioned, leaning into maybe more cinematic tropes than like writing tropes. Um, Are there any specific like tools that you use narratively to help your game? Oh, Absolutely. So I'm um, I'm an English major. As I said, I'm, a, I'm about to graduate and I'm actually working on, interestingly enough, a interactive fiction narrative English major thesis, which is just the coolest experience and I'm very, very lucky to have it. But it means that anytime that I run games, I'm pulling more from, as I said, a, a literary tradition. So I like to use tools like the hero's journey when I'm thinking about the kind of story that I want to tell. Um, I like to use things uh, like like Freytag and and plot and um, you know narrative climax and and character challenges as I'm thinking about the story beats that I want to hit when I'm writing a game. And the other big thing that I think um, that I think narrative highlights when you are designing and trying to tell stories is that you really have to start in the action. You have to pull the reader in immediately and that that ties in maybe more towards short stories i tend to think of short stories as the most like um like a one shot or you know a a three or four uh session kind of game because short stories uh there's something my fiction fiction professor always says short stories begin at the moment when everything changes you don't need all of the, the the building up you don't need all of the the world building that you know game masters do and and some games just just do they have all that world building packed into them a short story 
starts when everything changes and we have to look at the aftermath of that. It can be as small as uh, a crack in a relationship. It can be as big as an apocalypse, you know. But you have to look at the the aftermath and how characters react to it. You view the story through characters understanding how their world is falling apart in some way. And I think that entering a game session, entering a story, even a longer term campaign story, that's really the moment that you're looking for is when everything changes in the lives of these characters. For example, um, we have a very classic, like, you know, you meet in a tavern kind of Dungeons and Dragons narrative. And that's still when everything changes because the group comes together, they're brought together in some way, you're meeting people who are powerful enough or interesting enough or compelling enough that you begin to take a journey together instead of individually. I like to start any kind of game experience or story experience with a very, very tight, concise prompt. I want the the story to be what brings the characters in, and then I look to the players to tell me all all the rest of it, because any kind of, you know, very simple um, premise that you're planning is going to be entirely shaped by the characters in that story. You could tell, you know, there's like 700, 800, a million zombie apocalypse stories out there and sure they pull on different tropes and sure they use different themes you know the zombies are faster or they're more infectious or they act in different ways but the reason we come back to those stories is because we want to know about how different humans face the idea that they're edible you know that people are chasing them um, that their lives change have changed in so many ways so we look again and again and again to a single story because we care about how new characters react to that story. I think the same should be true of any kind of game experience you tell. You come up with a very interesting, compelling story, but you should be able to tell it a million different ways based on what the players bring to the table. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense because a lot of the the books and stuff that I have read, or even like TV shows and stuff, the ones that really pull me in and keep my attention are the ones where something happens like pretty much right away Mm -hmm. um and you kind of get that that little bit of a taste and then you want more and i was kind of thinking of like harry potter yeah um we don't see like i mean there's maybe like a scene that shows when he's a baby but then it like jumps to you know however old he is and then it's like bam okay now all this weird stuff is starting to happen and you and this character who didn't know he had any you know didn't know magic was real all of a sudden is kind of thrust into this weird you know situation where where that is what the world is and and we don't see that in between piece you know from when he was growing up because it really wasn't that important no yeah um starting in in media res like starting in the midst of plot it's just a very powerful tool that I highly recommend, especially if you're looking for um, a tighter or shorter experience. I've run one shots and I've told stories where uh, I'll take like a very concise, concise plot element of like, you're going into a crazy dungeon or you're facing off of a big enemy and then incorporating flashbacks of how the characters got there. But there's something so wonderful about confronting your players with an immediate threat and then letting them determine what brought them up to that point after they know what the threat is 
because then you're building forward-facing characters, characters who can, you know, reflect back on what brought them brought them to that point, but they are built inherently to care about the threat that you're facing. You start in the plot because they immediately have to care about whatever you're putting in front of them. Yeah, I really I really like that idea and it seems kind of like a like a powered by the apocalypse or mm-hmm. like you said kind of indie uh, thing that I feel like more games are kind of going towards to say, hey, you know, make sure your players have some buy-in here too. So when you're doing that, you you have the main plot element, but then you just say, why is it that you're in this situation? You just and then just let them answer however they want. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's I ask anytime that I I start a game that I've been very proud of or something that I want to continue, I come up with a significant event or I come up with a, you know, as you said, a plot element. And then I ask the players, why do you care? Because that's what really brings you to the table. I I think I would very much enjoy, you know, sort of a looser open world style. Um, It does appeal to me in the way that you can have so many different elements that players can care about. But I really recommend starting from that moment of why do you care? Because there's you're not always going to have players who are going to to push to connect with other characters. You might you're not always going to have characters that are going to have a lot in common. But if they all care about that one thing, they always have something to talk about. You know, they they always have something that they're they're thinking about. They always have something, have something that's going to bring them together. And then you can get into this delightful, delicious conflict of we're very different people, but we have to care about the same thing. Instead of saying, we're totally different people, you know, maybe we're, one of us is super religious and one of us is a criminal. We're super, super different. Why would we meet in a tavern and suddenly go out exploring the world together besides, oh, we want to make money. And we want to make money is a perfectly valid and wonderful plot device, but desperation, getting your players to care desperately about a single idea, it I don't know. I think it works every time. You know, it, it always creates wonderful, interesting, not just parties, you know, not just D&D style, but it creates um it creates story because the story tugs them along or tugs them along and um they fill in everything else for you. Um so I I'm kind of picturing like my players, right, sitting around the table mm-hmm. and like saying that to them. And I assume that when when you've asked players this that somebody will say something and then like the next person says something like oh and maybe i'm like your sibling or or i also work for that same organization and and like they kind of build off of each other yeah yeah so i've i also find that and that's why i really like i always try and propose a premise before character work happens I, I think you know if you let people know a game's happening and they start bringing characters to the, characters to the table and bringing you know backstory in there's so many ways that you as a as a game master can build those things together but there really is a a delight in starting with that simple premise and then as you said doing character work together uh saying yes i i want to reflect off of this element that that you're bringing to the table or i want to connect with you in this backstory or the reason that you care is the exact opposite of the reason that I care but we we met along the way um and we've we've been figuring out this problem together um I so I assume when you're kind of going through this process you probably don't necessarily encourage your players to have any like backstory 
pre-planned, right? You're kind of hoping that most of it will come out of like an initial session. It depends. I think based on the game that I would be running, I might be very, very eager for a player to bring a lot of backstory to the table, um, to have a lot of ideas ahead of time. The only thing that I am ever concerned about is if character backstory just doesn't tie into the story at all. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't happen, but it does put a lot of it does put a lot of um, energy. It, it requires a game master to put a lot of energy into taking that backstory and adapting it to the story they want to tell. And there are lots of people who have so much fun with that who like want to take that backstory and then surprise a player with, you know, this and this NPC or this character or this faction that you face was actually part of this larger grand conspiracy plot. I love that so, so, so much. But I've definitely had uh, players come to me with a very concrete, established character concept that didn't necessarily fit sort of the, the genre of the story. Meaning that I've, let's see, so I, um, I'm running a, a D&D campaign. It's called Siren's Quell. It's just a, a home game that I enjoy a lot. But the general concept for that campaign is that all of the players are graduating and becoming a members of a secret order of spies and assassins for the Grand Empire of the world. So all of the players, in order to become part of that assassin group, have to have spent time training with the Empire they have to at least pretend to be loyal to the Empire because they're becoming super, super high-ranking, you know, spies for that Empire. They have to have a reason that they would want that power or want to do missions for that Empire. And a player came to me with a concept that uh, was very original and individual, and it was a, a character who had a very rich, intense desire for power, but wanted to um, find a group of people to, like, be there for Horsemen of the Apocalypse, you know? And I have a hard time saying, well, that is a really lovely character concept, but why the hell would you be working for this Empire? You know, you're not from the Empire, you don't want the same things as the Empire, you're just looking for power. So we had to take the character concept and shift it to explain why this, you know, random, like, like dark wizard would spend four years at a college hanging out with college kids and you know learning and and studying and you know playing like fantasy sports games in order to become part of the spy order so you can take those really strong backstory concepts but i think it does require a lot of work to fit them into a story versus i brought the same campaign concept to a different player and i said you know you have to care about this empire in some reason, even if you might later discover, oh, they're corrupt or, oh, you don't like the empire as much. And this player said to me, I'm going to lean in so, so hard to this concept. I'm going to make a player who is incredibly nationalist, who has been brought up in this empire their entire life, who has nothing but the utmost loyalty, blind devotion to the empire that you've built. And that character has been, in so many ways, the heart of the party because they continually hold other players to a narrative standard of giving, you know, giving a shit about the people that they're working for, which means that every other character can be less loyal. Every other character can have questions. It allows other characters to be suspicious 
or paranoid or have different desires because there is one character that is so tugged along by the narrative <laughs> that everyone else follows in their wake. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, when you're going through these, um, or just like in general, when you're kind of moving along through different story points, um, do you tend to also like give them kind of various things and then ask them like, okay, this thing happens. And then, you know, tell me, tell me about it or explain more to kind of give them more little like tendrils into um, kind of the creation of the the world and the story. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. I think that all the world building and plot building I do tends to center character very intensely. I, I will say I have this like we've talked about you have this nugget you have this idea you know you set it in a world where that plot is going to be relevant but everything else around it gets filled in by character choices and it really creates this like wonderful self self-fulfilling loop that I think we love to see in our fantasy stories uh, something I've been thinking a lot about recently is that y- you are in sort of a classic tabletop role-playing game scenario, especially if you're, you know, being the game master and creating the world, uh, everything that you, everything that you make should mirror, reflect, and highlight the characters who are part of the story. If I was writing a novel, for example, um, and I really wanted to highlight some of the uh, difficult experiences that the protagonist had gone through. I would write the novel to highlight that. You know, there could be a, a random car accident that reminds them of an event in their an event in their past. The car accident happens on a meta level specifically because it's going to make the character feel something, and then you can write about what the character feels. There is so much world building that you can do by yourself that doesn't become story until someone else cares about it. And the best way to get people to care about story is to just ask them, what do you want to see? What is important to your character? So if I have a player say, oh, I really liked, you know, that detail. I really like this element of world building. Um, I really like this political power or this blacksmith shop. Saying yes is the most powerful thing you can do because they've told you that they care. So suddenly, because they care, the element they care about means everything. I've had plenty of funny experiences of a player, you know, picking up a random detail that I didn't intend to be that important, you know, a throwaway joke that you you don't expect people to actually, you know, think of as super plot relevant, but then you when you take the things that they highlight and you bring them back around and you bring that symbolism back in or you have a random uh, NPC keep appearing just because they get so excited when they see that NPC, what you're actually telling them is that they're in a hall of mirrors and that everything in the world is going to reflect an element of character back to them. That's a really neat uh, way to think about it. And it's something that I hadn't necessarily considered i think it's something you try to do kind of subconsciously maybe Mm -hmm. as a dm to try and you know when there are things that they like to to let them experience those things more um but i I guess i just like the way that you phrased it uh and that you should be trying to reflect and mirror those things back to your players um 
Yeah. Do you do you ever run into issues with player choice or maybe giving them too much choice? Ooh, that is a that is a wonderful question. I personally haven't had as much issue with it, but it's for a very specific reason. And I think it's about the foundation that you build before you ever even start a game. If you tell players that you care about their choices, if you say your agency is everything to me, I want you to be able to shape this story with the choices that you make, you are setting an expectation for them. You're telling them that, you know, even minor details uh, could become really, really significant. And the place where that could get dangerous is if you have a lot of expectations for your players, you know, if you want them to be constantly engaged and if you tell them that there's going to be crazy, crazy consequences for every single action that they have. Uh, they have to know that. Otherwise, you run into problems maybe of accessibility, you know, expecting everyone to have their brains super active all the time and be paying attention all the time. Or if you just keep punishing them and threatening them for con with consequences that you didn't actually warn them about, that's when you do run into trouble of taking choices too seriously. I also think that you, you can have trouble with players who will take advantage of that kind of agency, but that comes down more to the way that you set up a group of people, like the people that you look for when you're telling these stories and recognizing that there will be some players who want to set the world on fire. If you are not prepared with a world made of kindling for a player to set on fire, um, when you have that kind of player, then you have to let them know about that from the get-go. You have to give them that concept from the very beginning of saying, there will be consequences with certain actions that you're going to take. Not every game of any RPG, not every game of D&D &D is set up to, uh, to deal with those consequences. There are plenty of wonderful, silly games that you can play where consequences don't matter. And there are plenty of games that are set up, you know, to have all the ducks in a row and let players just shoot them down willy-nilly. But I think it's more the idea of agency and choice and caring a lot about it uh that ties into safety in so many interesting ways not letting players take advantage uh, of a story you're telling but if you think about the story as something that is tightly held in your grasp and they're trying to to wrestle it away from you then you're always going to end up with issues of players making choices you don't expect because in this in this crazy wonderful hobby of storytelling any story changes when you bring someone else into it to tell it with you you are always going to find ideas you don't expect it's the sense of willingness to adapt to things you don't expect that creates atmospheres where players just have a lot of respect for the decisions that they make doesn't mean they have to take themselves super seriously but it, it does mean that they they start to care you know about the character they start to care about the world because they they know that it um it's built for them in some way or it's built because of choices that they've made and i've never seen a player i've never seen player care as something that is dangerous i've never it has only ever been wonderful in my experience well, that's good. That's that's encouraging. I feel like um, for people maybe who haven't played some of the 
indie games where where it talks about more of this like player choice and 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 kind of offloading uh, world information or lore to be decided by the players. I, I think the one yeah. the one thing that people get nervous about if they've never seen that is like I don't want them to just like completely go off of the rails, mm-hmm. you know, with it. Um, but I like what what you said where you're coming from. Like if you're giving them these things to care about, and you're just open kind of about how the group is going to be and how the the world building and stuff is going to be um for the most part you haven't run into into issues and i guess the other thing i would add is that as the game master you still do kind of have the final stamp of approval if yeah if somebody yeah. goes off the deep end but um it i think it can it, that may be a challenge for some dungeon masters is to relink relinquish a little bit of control there <laughs> oh absolutely i think my advice for those dungeon masters in particular and just my biggest piece of advice generally in relationships just you know relationship where people are building things together is that communication is the most useful tool you can have you are i think there's so much wonder in a dm who takes exquisite care to build a world and to build a plot and to have you know a narrative that they care about to to create a set of beautiful rails for the players to follow and there can be a danger of players hopping in and saying well i really like this other thing you mentioned it it is entirely in a different direction and then use it under master saying well you know i i I want you to to play a game you like and if that's something that you like like oh you know maybe i'll delete my whole plot to go follow it but communication if you communicate to players that you have built something for them even if it's not at the very start of a game even if you just say okay i i understand that there's this other trail that you desperately want to follow if you just tell your players that i have built something wonderful and interesting in a direction that i'm hinting you should follow hopefully that lets players know that there's something fun in that as well you have to that they um that they think of the dungeon master as a a player or an interested party as well there's nothing better that you can do as a dungeon master when you are flustered frustrated you know struggling in a moment than to just speak up and say it to your players it's not there's no angry god you know manifesting over a world of of terrified people you know that your players shouldn't be your pawns if you let your players know that you are fallible if you let your players know that you are working just as hard as they are on creating a beautiful experience together if you let them know that you don't know what to do next that you are not sure how to react to a decision that they've made or that a decision that they've made has been painful or or difficult or might cause some hurt feelings saying it up front is the best way to to move forward a um, couple pieces of advice that i i think one of them was from matt colville yeah uh, i think he kind of talked in one video about um like the players had like a choice where they could keep going into like further into like a dungeon or they could just like turn around and go do something completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things he said was like, well, I've prepped the dungeon so we can either play what I have prepared for, or if you don't want to do that, it's going to be next week before we can actually do the exactly. other thing that you want to do, because I just don't have anything planned yet. So, um, 
and either is fine, uh, but just being upfront with your players of, I don't think I can come up with something on the fly right now. So like, this is kind of what we have. Um, and then I think one of the other things, if it's just like a little quick decision or a quick thing that you're maybe not sure how to react to, I have seen people say that like, okay, let's just everybody take like a five minute break, grab some snacks, use the bathroom and just like give the DM some time to just like process what's happening so that they can make a good you know, narrative decision versus just coming up with like the first thing, you know, that maybe is less satisfying, uh, but it's the first thing that they, they think of. I know as a DM, it can be hard to want to, uh, to say like, I I don't know what the correct answer is for what happens next. So it's hard to sometimes say, okay, yes, we need to take a break and I need to just think for 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely agree with both of those pieces of advice. One of the things I would add on um, is that there's a bunch of very cool safety tools that are out there in regards to narrative flow that a dungeon master can use besides just saying, you know, I want to take a break. One of the ones that I've seen that I really enjoy is the idea of a play, pause, and stop button for moments of role play and the ability to rewind. I've played with game masters and I've seen game masters who really want to play, like hold players accountable in the moment to every decision that they make. You know, they they let a secret slip out. Um, even if a player was like, I really didn't mean to do that. Or they pull a weapon and it has crazy, terrible consequences and they they didn't mean for that to happen. And suddenly their their player, their character like is dead. Having a pause and a rewind button, being able to say in a moment of a game, I need to pause and think about what just happened, or I would like to rewind. I would like to take another look at, you know, the decisions we've just made and what brought us to this point. Because we're not just watching a, you're not just watching like a a million dollar budget movie where things that are, are difficult to watch just happen because they've been established. It's an it's an ongoing living breathing story, and if you uh, use that like safety tool format of saying we're kind of constructing a piece of media together, it's okay to to pause the story and you know react like uh, from secondhand embarrassment or react because you just saw a jump scare in a movie and you want your breath to come to calm down. Um, you want to like catch your breath. It constructs the um, constructs the experience as something that you guys are stepping into and that you can step away from without ruining the actual piece of media. It's always going to exist for you to come back to. I really like the rewind, pause, stop. Um, and when you mentioned like a, you know, a, a big budget movie, right? Mm-hmm. The first thing that came to my mind was they don't shoot those movies in, it's not the first take that you see on every single scene, right? So having to like, okay, let's just rewind a little bit. Maybe something else makes a little bit more sense. Let's revisit that. Um, Because you're right. We're, we're not, even in the movies that we watch, you're watching the final cut. You're watching Mm -hmm. the best scenes that made the most sense in terms of the narrative, but that's not, just what was filmed they filmed a lot more than that in order to get those those snippets um and then the other thing that i thought was was interesting as you mentioned being kind of punishing towards um actions one of the phrases that got used in the last um D campaign that i was in was it's been said so as soon as somebody had said something even if it's like oh no wait it would be better if i did this 
nope, it's been said mm-hmm. that is what happened. And there was, there was none of that, um, you know, ability to kind of like tweak things or to relook at things. Um, but just as a DM, I really like the idea of that, uh, basically having a remote control to say, okay, we need to stop here for a second so we can catch our breath and figure out what happens next. Yeah. And I think they're different styles, you know, that, that style of, of wanting to rewind, rewind or, or pause isn't going to work for everyone. There are people who, who really do want the consequences of it's out there in the world and let's see how people are going to react to it. It just comes down to having um, communication conversations with people at the beginning of, you know, there might be reflections very immediately of the actions that you take. I just like to suggest the idea of being able to to rewind and pause as sort of a method, again, of accessibility. There are plenty of casual RPG players who aren't going to say, like, the most brilliant thing off the top of their head as soon as you present them with a problem. They're not going to have the perfect reaction. They might make silly decisions or they might make a joke or they might make a decision that they really regret. Giving people a chance to rewind, step back, like process or think about the decisions that they want to make also helps with maybe people who struggle with uh, processing disorders or, um, you know, neuro neurodivergence. I myself have ADHD and I definitely find that there are moments where someone says something to me and I didn't hear it very well or I'm confronted with a problem and it really takes me some time to uh, think about how I want to respond to it. So that rewind tool can be a, a nice way for a DM to just say to a player, I'm not expecting you to be perfect immediately. I will let you take time to figure out in your brain, you know, how this story follows how the story follows um your method of decision making right and just, yeah just that accessibility and being open with uh, with your players especially when you have intense scenes happening you know Ooh, yeah. s- sometimes it is easy to make quick decisions or you know like i said before like sometimes it's just like uh i'm not sure i'm not sure okay the first thing that pops into my head that's you know that's what i do and maybe that's not Maybe that's not what your character would do, or maybe that's not the uh, the most narratively satisfying thing to do. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I like having that as a tool to use. Um, we are getting kind of close to our hour. Yeah. Um, was there was there anything else that you want to talk about before we kind of switch into some of the projects that you're working on? No, I, I think that sounds good. Um, a lot of the things that I've, a lot of the ideas of agency and accessibility that I've been talking about uh, come up in a project that I've been working on recently. So I'd love to chat about it. Perfect. Well, I will just let you lead right into it then. Cool. Absolutely. Um, so the, the big thing, the very, very exciting story that I'm working on right now is actually a streamed game. It streams every Saturday from uh, noon EST to around 3.30 p.m. EST. Sometimes we start a bit earlier, sometimes we start a bit later. This is a uh, fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons campaign streaming over on Twitch at Total Party Kiss. You can find us on Twitch or on Twitter. And it's called uh, Strange Hungers. Strange Hungers is a homebrew horror campaign that I've been writing with some friends of mine. And we just got started. It's uh, about four or five episodes in, and it is absolutely a delight to work on. One of the things that I, one of the reasons I've been thinking so much about agency and choice is because I think that horror requires a a very specific level of safety from players. I've 
you know, consumed a bunch of horror movies. I love horror podcasts, all of that stuff. But one of the things about telling a horror story is that it is intense. You know, it takes, it has an, you have an emotional reaction to certain kinds of horror. You need to have a space to step away from it. You need to know at the end of the day that as terrifying, scary, and monstrous as the world is, that you can retreat from it. I think that's one of the reasons that people like horror. It allows them to process, you know, horrific experiences or to process darkness in a space that doesn't directly touch on their life, that isn't going to have actual physical consequences in their real life. So horror RPGs and horror storytelling allow us to step into the shoes of characters who are going through those experiences to process ideas that might be difficult for us to think about in our day-to-day -day lives in a space that we can step away from. Uh, Strange Hungers is a delightful little game because it doesn't immediately delve into super, super intense horror. The idea we've been talking about of having, you know, this like seed, this plot that the characters get tugged along and tugged into uh, comes up a lot in Strange Hungers because the concept for the campaign is that the party is playing an expeditionary group that are venturing into horrific frozen wastes on the edge of the world. All of their characters have a reason that they would want to go on this expedition in the first place. They all have that call to adventure, and it can be different for all of those characters. But we didn't really get to that call to adventure in the first moment. I knew it was coming. I suggested, proposed the campaign to the players with the idea that they would be going on this expedition, that they needed a reason their characters would be coming together to do it. But they didn't necessarily know the full breadth of the horror they might be facing. I, they still don't, of course, that would be spoilers in these wastes. But they do know that it is a, a deadly area. They do know that it is going to hold some kind of monstrosity. So we've built very deliberately characters that are prepared or not prepared to face monstrosity, but also characters that will find themselves reflected in the monstrosity of the world. The things that they face are going to be the things that they fear. The monsters that are going to try and kill them are going to have reasons to kill them. Everything about the chaos of the horror of this world ties deliberately into the things that the characters care about. So we've done all of that prep work ahead of time. We, we've talked about safety. We've talked about what the players are comfortable with seeing in facing in horror. We've talked about what the player characters are afraid of and, you know, what would specifically um, scare the shit out of them. So we've done all <laughs> that. We've done all that. We've done all that work beforehand to say that you know where you're going. You know it's going to be terrifying, but you get to take the time beforehand to discover these characters deeply in an area of the world that is that is less scary. So um, yeah, it's a great project. I'm super excited to be working on it. And it, it does reflect a lot of that intention, that agency, that um, making choices, even though, you know, you're a character in a horror movie, of course, you're going to make bad decisions. Everyone from the get go <laughs> knows that they're heading into a place that is, is super devastating and terrifying and scary because it's a horror campaign. But they make those decisions anyway, because, well, because it fits the story. I really like 
um, just kind of like circling back on the both the player agency and kind of the um, talking about what they're comfortable with and what they're comfortable with seeing, but then also knowing like, okay, here's some things that I'm I'm okay with seeing, but they would also still really freak me out. So mm-hmm. you you have a I just the way that you described it just feels like a really solid foundation for um, everybody's going to feel safe, but everybody's also going to be terrified at the same time as they go deeper and deeper into this world. Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head. I There are so many different like flavors of horror. Um, and I think that uh, specifically, you know, I am playing a D&D game. Um, the recent source book, uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, touches on some really fun different genres of horror. I highly recommend it for any dungeon master who is looking at running a horror campaign, even if they don't want to use any of the setting elements, because there's um, a really great section in the Guide to Ravenloft that talks about genres of horror for people who might be more new to it, and it gives you suggestions for monsters or encounters that a player might face in that genre of horror. Things like cosmic horror and abolith or things um that are more like gothic horror and and vampires and skeletons and and werewolves and all that stuff and it's been really really fun to pull from because it touches on uh how you can genre bend D D to fit just so many different different kinds of stories and i've been pulling from uh guide to ravenloft in terms of the possible encounters that i'm going to construct but i've also done a lot of reflavoring to make them suit the world building that i've been doing uh and to make them you know horrible and icy and and dripping with black oil and and, you know monstrous and and all that stuff um do you have a plan for like how many uh like episodes or streams that this is going to take or is this just going to be kind of an ongoing campaign uh, this is definitely a longer ongoing campaign. As I said, we've had about uh, five or six episodes at this point, and the players literally last episode just received the funding for the expedition that they're about to go on. So we have not even dived into the wastes yet. There is a long, rich, uh, wonderful, horrifying plot ahead of them. So it, it should be ongoing um, most Saturdays, right now, every Saturday uh, for the foreseeable future. And do you have, um, can people go back and watch previous episodes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You can find uh, previous episodes both on our YouTube, which is Total Party Kiss. And on our Twitch, we have all of our VODs up on Twitch, Total Party Kiss. Cool. So anybody who is new to the show can can go hurry up and and catch up since you've only got a handful of episodes. It is a perfect time to hop in. Um. So you said this was a fifth edition game. Have you done any tweaking or anything to the system or the characters or anything for the stream? So much. (laughs) So much. Yeah. I personally love homebrew and I do a lot of homebrew. And I also pull from a bunch of other RPG systems. I think that, I mean, I tend to think that any game of D&D is going to be very unique to the table that it's being run at. But I have done, um, I think that each character, yes, Every single character that is playing in the game has some element of homebrew, whether it's in their race or in their class or in um, boons that they've been granted as well. The world itself is also entirely homebrew. There are homebrew schools of magic. There are homebrew languages. um, There are homebrew mechanics, uh, things that the players roll for every day or interactions that they have with gods that might be very different from a traditional D&D pantheon. That's really exciting. I 
personally really like homebrewing both as a dm and when that's an option for me to come up with stuff as a player so mm-hmm. um definitely within within my style or preferred style as a as a rpg enthusiast i guess <laughs> yeah yeah um and the very fun thing i mean again like all the themes that we've been touching on the homebrew that i really like to design is homebrew that is intrinsically based both in world building and character so I often find that the homebrew that I design isn't necessarily specifically balanced to slot into every D&D game. Usually the homebrew that I design will be based on a major element of my world. It might be based on the specific divinities that you can find on that planet. It might be based on certain uh, themes or powers that come up again and again, specifically in my world, um, hunger comes up again and again and again as a form of monstrosity what are people hungry for what are they what do they desire you know that that basic instinct and how that can corrupt when you are too hungry so a lot of the homebrew that i do i always do it with players i will you know we'll do that sort of reflective process that reflective process that we've mentioned which is that they'll tell me something they find interesting, I say, okay, here are three or four places that you can find that interesting thing in the world, or here are uh, three and four, three or four characters who might have a, a similar experience to the character that, that you want. That means that I'm pulling in like heroes, myths, legends that tie into the character, that reflect the character. Um, it means that when I design like, like subclasses, those subclasses always uh, come from a place in the world. And they're always built to highlight something, an important element of the character, uh, you know, a facet of their personality or um, something that is very important to the character. So I think that you don't have to balance homebrew for everyone. You can balance homebrew by giving a player exactly what they want and then also telling them, you know, this homebrew has specific consequences i really love that system of like i'll give you a boon and i'll also give you a curse i'll make this more powerful than a normal subclass might be but it'll also come with specific consequences because it'll it, because it's more powerful um that, that is a fun way to design things it, it mm-hmm. makes everything that you have whether it's an ability or an item or whatever um you have to think a little bit more carefully about it versus just, oh, this yeah. is just a plus one sword or whatever. It's just it's just an upgrade, right? There's there mm-hmm. are there are consequences there. And I also really like um the idea of homebrewing for the world that you're in. Um just because it feels like that's gonna give players a little bit more buy-in to the world and just the then you're using kind of mechanics or items or abilities or whatever to then reinforce the themes or the narrative or the lore of the world that you're playing in. Um, So I think that's really cool. And I mean, fifth edition isn't necessarily balanced by itself anyways. So I mean, (laughs) who cares, right? Exactly. Things are balanced to work with other mechanics. You know, there's plenty of discussions that's been had about PvP. And if you you place a a wizard against a barbarian, you know, who would win? But I, I definitely agree with you that I think you don't always have to design for balance in a game that has strategic elements. You can design for, uh, the balance of your own story. 
And it, it, not every dungeon master necessarily wants to um, make crazy, crazy powerful monsters and have to upgrade their world to face crazy, crazy powerful characters. But I do think that, you know, that that, that given pull, that, that tug, that story um, that you do in homebrew, you will generally find that a player having fun is the best uh, measurement of balance. If a player is having so so much fun and totally wrecking you okay well maybe maybe it's less balanced but you still know that they're enjoying it so you can base you know the way you adjust it on that if a player isn't having fun isn't getting to use abilities um even if those abilities might be crazy crazy powerful even if they could you know touch a dragon and knock it down dead but they're not having fun because they don't see any dragons and and they're never using that ability well it's balanced in a different direction it's not narratively balanced even if it's you know mechanically super powerful um, that, I think that comes a little bit back to your reflection uh, thing mm-hmm. that you mentioned before. One thing that I've tried to do um, as a game master is when there's a player that's really good at something or has kind of a specific skill set to expose them more to those things. Um, because I've been a part of games where uh, like I played a monk once mm-hmm. and one of their cool abilities right is that they can deflect or they can like catch arrows and stuff right in fifth edition yeah and so like it, from the enemy's perspective shooting arrows at the monk is just a waste of time because it's either not going to hit them or do damage or it's going to do very little right and there's a possibility that they throw back at you which is just not is not good but it's super fun as a player but then sometimes in those situations, the DM will be like, well, this isn't really effective. So I'm just not going to shoot at the monk because that would be a waste of you know my turns, which then like as the player is like, you know, I have this really cool ability and I never get to use it. It's not <laughs> or, fun. Or like having having like a martial character that has a bunch of attacks, right? Give them a bunch of minions that they can just kill really quickly with a bunch of attacks or... Even if you have like a tanky character, like throw a bunch of like weak minions at them that will attack a bunch of times. And then like everybody misses because their armor class is so high, right? That's enjoyable to them because they've built a character that is designed to um, either be in those situations or play that role in the party to defend or to attack or whatever. Um, But if you never throw stuff at them or if you are always like, well, last time, the enemies didn't do any damage to you, so I'm just going to make them hit harder, then that becomes less fun for the character. That's entire thing is, I just want to be a tank and and not take damage, right? So again, reflecting and and sometimes throwing stuff at players that, you know, from the enemy's perspective is going to be wasteful. uh, That can can be a lot of fun for players. Yeah, and all of that, I completely agree with all of that. Um, I'm always a fan of just yeah, using, letting the players use their abilities. But one of the cool, subtle things about, like, challenging players in a way that they're prepared for is that it actually is also good storytelling. D&D has so many of these, like, very, um, very subtle ways of doing world building just through the classes that are available. You think about monks, and there's um, an implication that there are people who train for this kind of you know these martial abilities you think about paladins and it implies orders you think about warlocks and it implies cosmic entities um so just by those classes existing it gives 
people so much to build off of. But when you say, okay, you know, there are people in this world who can literally catch arrows with their hands. Why would there be people who can do that if there weren't a shit ton of arrows flying around, right? Like, why would people train up these abilities if there wouldn't be situations where they could use them? Why would there be weaponry that is specifically designed to kill undead if there aren't undead to use them on? So the idea that a mechanic exists specifically so it can be used means that you're doing that same process of creating a world that reflects what the players want back to them. It's not just because um, it's not just because it's fun for them. Of course, it is going to be fun to them, fun for them to to get to use whatever they've been working on. But it implies that all the hero work D and D is about heroes. All the hero work that players do is to become heroic in a world that challenges them in a way that they are prepared for. They do all that training to face horrors. They do all that training to face challenges that exist in this world long enough that people rise to meet those challenges in specific ways. Yeah, I think that was a really great way of just kind of summarizing that whole piece there. Yeah. Um, We are getting about to an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything else that you would like to, uh, talk about or mention or, um, or maybe talk a little bit about where we can find you one more time before yeah, we absolutely. are done? Um, well, that was a lovely conversation. Thank you so, so much. Um, yeah, I can just talk about myself a little bit. So yeah, my name is Alex Teplitz. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at alder underscore mancy you can also find some of my game design work is going to be more of it's coming out real soon i'm as i said i'm working on an interactive fiction thesis that's going to be released as a game hopefully in 2022 you can find me on itch.io at sword ghost you can also find me on kofi at sword ghost and most other places uh twitch tiktok i'll just be regular old alder mancy Awesome. Well, I really appreciated having you on. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Brock. It was it was so, so nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server. 